Orange Curtain, a look at 80s music from Orange County, California. Music that came from here and music that came to here. Join me, your host, Doug Crandall, every Thursday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. to another episode of Behind the Orange Curtain. Behind the Orange Curtain explores music that came from Orange County, California to influence the rest of the world, and music that made it to Orange County, California from around the world to influence those of us who lived here in the 1980s. This week, we'll look at 80s bands from the land down under, Australia, specifically the music scene of pub rock, which would launch such iconic bands such as In Excess and Midnight Oil. Pub rock is a style of Australian rock and roll popular throughout the 1970s and 1980s and still influencing contemporary Australian music in the 2000s decade. The term came from the venues where most of these bands originally played, inner city and suburban pubs. These often noisy, hot, small and crowded venues were not always ideal as music venues and favored loud, simple songs based on drums and electric guitar riffs. The emergence of the Australian version of the pub rock genre and the related pub circuit was the result of several interconnected factors. From the 1950s to the 1970s, mainly because of restrictive state liquor licensing laws, only a small proportion of live pop and rock music in Australia was performed on licensed premises, mostly private clubs and discotheques. The majority of concerts were held in non-licensed venues like community, church, or municipal halls. These concerts and dances were all ages events and often with adult supervision and alcohol was not served. During the 1960s, however, Australian states began liberalizing their licensing laws. Sunday observance acts were repealed, pub opening hours were extended, discriminatory regulations such as the long-standing ban on women entering or drinking in public bars were removed, and in the 1970s, the age of legal majority was lowered from 21 to 18. Concurrently, the members of the so-called baby boomer generation, who were the main audience for the pop and rock music, were reaching their late teens and early 20s, and were thus able to enter such licensed premises. Pub owners soon realized that providing live music, which was often free, would draw young people to pubs in large numbers, and regular rock performers soon became a fixture at many pubs. Many city and suburban pubs gained renowned for their support of live music in many prominent Australian bands, including ACDC, Cold Chisel, The Angels, and The Dingoes, developed their style at these venues in the early days of their careers. Australian musicologist Ian McFarlane described how ACDC took the raw energy of Aussie pub rock 
extend its basic guidelines and serves it up to a teeny bopper crowd. As the pub rock phenomenon expanded, hundreds of hotels in capital cities and major towns began providing regular live music, and a thriving circuit evolved, enabling bands to tour up and down the eastern and southern coast of Australia, from North Queensland to South Australia. It could be argued that the very venues many of the bands played in, pubs, had a major influence on the evolution of their music and sound. The venues were more often than not small and the crowds alcohol-fueled. An emphasis on simple rhythm-based songs grew. With the sound in many of the rooms far from ideal for live music, an emphasis on a very loud snare and kick drum and driving bass guitar grew. Guitarists tend to rely on simple, repetitive riffs rather than more complex solos or counter-melodies. This might explain why, even in the studios and larger arenas and stadiums, many of the bands who originated in pubs relied on exaggerated drum sound and fairly simple musical arrangements. Though Australia has a relatively small population, the proportionally high number of venues that bands could play in, mainly along the eastern coast, meant that the band could tour extensively, often playing every night for long periods. This would allow bands such as ACDC, Cold Chisel, In Excess, Midnight Oil, Rose Tattoo, and others to take their live skills into the venues into the U.S. and Europe with ease. So let's dig into the first band. Sir Bob Geldof famously stated that rock music in the 70s was altered by three bands, the first being the Sex Pistols, the second being the Ramones, and the third was a band called the Saints. While the first two names have become synonymous with the word punk, the Saints remain the black sheep of the lineup. The under-recognized misfits from Brisbane, who helped shape punk as we know it. The Saints formed in Brisbane in the mid-1970s under a heavily conservative state government. Four high school friends took their living room to bash out song after song, inviting their friends into the house for makeshift gigs. The band was building a following around the city. In September of 1976, the Saints booked a few hours in a recording studio and left with their first single, I'm Stranded, and No Time. They made their own label called Fatal Records. It wasn't until two months later that the Sex Pistols would make history with their first single, Anarchy in the UK, and six months later, The Clash released White Riot. The self-titled debut from the Ramones had only been on the shelves for a few short months. The Saints, their single, I'm Stranded, was in the forefront of the ubiquitous explosion of punk music. The Saints were not only Australia's first punk band, but they were one of the first punk bands, period. I'm Stranded was sent to the local and international press. 500 copies were made, 400 were sent away. And in the UK, it was there that they were first picked up. Sounds Magazine proudly declared it the single of every week, which led to the powers at EMI telling their Australian division to sign the band immediately, following a trend across the world where labels scrambled to sign any punk band that formed. The rest of 1976 went by in a blur. The Saints were signed to EMI in November, moved to Sydney, supported ACDC, and then recorded their debut album, also titled I'm Stranded. They spent a whopping two days in the studio recording the 10-track album. The album was released alongside a reissue of their first single on the cusp of punk breaking through pop culture. 
The Saints went on to tour Australia with varying degrees of success. Their live show was raucous and unpredictable, much like their album was. The story goes that Cooper was using a public address system as his guitar amp, destroying the eardrums of all that stood in its path. The band members eventually made their way to England, where they appeared on the top of the pops to perform their new single, This Perfect Day. The Saints also played their first ever UK show on a bill with the Talking Heads and the Ramones. The Saints were temporarily the darlings of the UK punk scene, but this was not long-lived. Frontmen Johnny Rotten and Joe Strummer had visual and phys- physical style that became synonymous with punk, a style which the Saints frequently rejected. Bailey, often holding a cigarette and singing behind a mop of tussled hair on stage, well, that was the Saints. And here for you now are the two singles that were released, Stranded and This Perfect Day. Come on! 
drummer Rob Hurst, bass guitarist Andrew James, and keyboard slash lead guitarist Jim Mogginney were performing together. They adopted the name Farm in 1972 and played covers of Cream, Creedence Clearwater Revival, and Led Zeppelin songs. They placed an advertisement for a band member, and Peter Garrett answered. He came on as the new vocalist and synthesizer player and began introducing progressive rock elements of Focus, Jethro Tull, and Yes, as well as his own material. Garrett was studying at the Australian National University of Canberra, so Farm was only a part-time band. They played for Northern Sydney's surfing community, and by 1975, they were touring the East Coast. In late 1976, Garrett moved to Sydney to complete his law degree. Farm then became a full-time group and changed its name to Midnight Oil. By drawing a name out of a hat, leaving behind the names Television, Sparta, and Southern Cross. The phrase Midnight Oil came from the Jimi Hendrix song, Burning the Midnight Lamp. After changing its name to Midnight Oil, the group began to develop an aggressive punk rock sound for their pub rock audiences. Guitarist Martin Rotsey joined in 1977, and Midnight Oil with their manager Gary Morris established their own record label, Powderworks. 
The Australian breakthrough and first international recognition came in 1982 with the release of 10987654321 or 10 to 1 as fans often abbreviate it, which includes the singles Power and the Passion and Read About It. The album was recorded in London during September and produced by the Englishman Nick Linnae, who had previously worked with acts including The Jam, XTC, Peter Gabriel, PIL, Gang of Four, and The Birthday Party. Linnae worked on several other major Australian recordings in this period, including In Excess, The Swing, and The Church's Seance. The group's creative growth spurt coincided with the new decade and new era of global upheaval, where many young bands responded to the onset of the Cold War era with new forms of cold, techno-driven pop. Midnight Oil rearranged the ferocity and lusty urgency of rock and roll. However, unlike Bruce Springsteen or John Mellencamp, the Australian band avoided roots rock and instead equipped its impassioned songs with angular, foreboding arrangements. You won't find any wallowing here. Rather than cower from themes of global corruption, imperialism, and media saturation, Midnight Oil confronted them head-on with a vigor and conviction matched only by The Clash, a like-minded band that was starting to fall apart as the oils were picking up steam. Along with Power and the Passion, I'm going to play two other songs by Midnight Oil. Dream World, which was the fourth and final single from their sixth studio album, Diesel and Dust, in the United States, and it reached number 16 on the modern rock chart and number 37 on the mainstream rock chart. I will also end it with Beds Are Burning. It's the first track of that album, Diesel and Dust. The song was released as the second single for the album. It reached number one in New Zealand, South Africa, and Canada, number three in the Netherlands, number five in France, number six in the United Kingdom, Australia, and Ireland, number 17 in the United States and Sweden. It is one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. And in May of 2001, the Australasian Performing Right Association, the APRA, celebrated its 75th anniversary by naming the best Australian songs of all time, as decided by a 100-strong industry panel. Beds Are Burning was declared number three.
John Hutchins was born on January 22, 1960, to Sydney businessman Kelland Frank Hutchins and makeup artist Patricia Glassup. Kelland's parents were Sea Captain Frank Hutchins and Mabs from England, who settled in Sydney in 1922. Michael joined elder half-sister Tina. Both siblings were of Irish ancestry and their mother's side, as Patricia's father was from the country of Cork in Ireland. Following Kell's business interests, the Hutchins family moved to Brisbane, where younger brother Rhett was born, and later to Hong Kong. During the early years in Hong Kong, both boys attended Beacon Hill School in Kulong Tong. While in Hong Kong, Michael showed promise as a swimmer before breaking his arm badly. He then began to show interest in poetry and performed his first song in a local toy store commercial. Michael attended King George V school during his early teens. The family returned to Sydney in 1972, buying a house in Belrose near the northern beaches. Hutchins attended Davidson High School, where he met and befriended Andrew Ferris. Around this time, Hutchins and Ferris spent a lot of time jamming in the garage with Andrew's brothers. Ferris then convinced Hutchins to join his band, Dr. Dolphin, alongside classmates Kent Kearney and Neil Sanders, bass guitarist Gary Beers, and drummer Jeff Kenley from nearby Forest High School filled out the lineup. 
Hutchins' parents separated when he was 15, and for a short time in 1976, he lived with his mother and half-sister Tina in California. Hutchins later returned to Sydney with his mother. In 1977, a new band, the Ferris Brothers, was formed with Tim Ferris on lead guitar, his younger brother Andrew as keyboardist, and youngest brother John on drums. Andrew brought Hutchins on board as the vocalist and Beers on bass guitar, and Tim brought in his former bandmate Kirk Pengilly to play guitar and saxophone. The band made their debut on 16th of August 1977 at Whale Beat, north of Sydney. Hutchins, the Ferris Brothers, Kearney, Sanders, Beers, and Kennelly briefly performed as the Vegetables, singing a song called We Are the Vegetables. Ten months later, they returned to Sydney and recorded a set of demos. The Ferris Brothers regularly supported hard rockers Midnight Oil on the pub rock circuit, and they were renamed In Excess in 1979. Their first performance under the name was on September 1st at an Ocean View Hotel in Tukley. In May of 1980, the group released its first single, Simple Simon, and We Are the Vegetables on the flip side. Their first top 40 Australian hit on the Kent Music Report singles chart was a song called Just Keep Walking. It was released in September of 1980. So for you, this evening, I'm going to play all three of those songs, Simple Simon, We Are the Vegetables, and Just Keep on Walking. Here's In Excess. The early years. Try and love one and 
from Sydney formed in 1977. Initially known in Australia for their pub rock style, the band later achieved mainstream success playing new wave and synth pop music and attained top 10 singles chart success locally and in both Europe and the U.S. The band was originally called The Flowers and released their first album under that name and then changed its name to Ice House. Iva Davies is the singer-songwriter record producer, guitar, bass, keyboards, and oboe player, supplying additional musicians as required. The name Ice House, adopted in 1981, comes from an old cold flat Davies lived in and the strange building across the road populated by itinerant people. Ice House was inducted into the Australian Recording Industry Association's Hall of Fame on August 16th of 2006. Aria described Ice House as one of the most successful Australian bands of the 80s and 90s. With an uncompromising approach to music production, they created songs that ranged from pure pop, escapism, to edgy, lavish, synthesized pieces. Ice House has produced 8 top 10 albums and 20 top 40 singles in Australia, multiple top 10 hits in Europe and North America, and album sales over 28 times platinum in Austral Asia alone. Although Ocean Blue was a big success here in the U.S., I'm going to play two songs that weren't quite as big. The first song is Ice House, and it's a song that was released in Europe in 1982 by Chrysalis Records from the band's first album. In the United States, the song peaked at number 28 on the Billboard Top Tracks chart in 1981, and the second song is a song called No Promises, released in 1985. It's the first single issued from the band's 1986 album, Measure for Measure. 
The single was released in Australia through regular records on 7-inch and 12-inch and maxi cassette single formats. Chrysalis Records issued the single in the UK and Europe on 7-inch and 12-inch formats with different track listings. No Promises was subsequently released in the US by Chrysalis in 7-inch and 12-inch formats as well. The single peaked at number 30 on the Australian Singles Chart in February of 1986. Here they both are for you now. Ice House.
James Hay, born June 29, 1953. He's a Scottish-Australian musician, singer-songwriter, and actor. He came to prominence as the lead vocalist of the band Men at Work, and later as a solo artist. Hay's music has been frequently used by actor and director Zach Braff in his work, which helped his career rebirth in the mid-2000s. In 1978, Hay met Ron Streichert. The men began playing an acoustic duo together. Hay and Stryker formed the core of the band Men at Work. With Hay on vocals, guitar, and keyboards, and Stryker on guitar, vocals, and bass. 
Hay and Stryker added Jerry Spezer on drums, John Rees bass guitar and backing vocals, and Greg Ham flute, saxophone, and keyboards and vocals. The group released their debut album, Business as Usual, in 1981. The success of Men at Work and their albums Business as Usual and Cargo prompted Hay to relocate to Los Angeles in 1989. He settled in the Topanga region of the city and has resided in the U.S. ever since. In January of 2016, he became a U.S. citizen. Around 1979, lead vocalist Colin Hay wrote the music for Who Can It Be Now in a treehouse he and his girlfriend made in New South Wales. The lyrics would not come until 1981, when Hay was living in an apartment complex in St. Kilda in Victoria. He lived next to a drug dealer, and people would often confuse Hay's apartment for the dealer's. The number of people that would knock on his door unnerved him to the point to where he was scared to open his door, regardless of who was there. At the time, Hay was also anxious about his music career, which had yet to take off. In a 2015 interview, Hay explained, I was trying to get out of the situation I was in, which is, I didn't really have any money. It seemed that that particular time, everyone who knocked my door wanted something from me that I either didn't have or didn't want to give them. That could be money, or it could simply be time that I didn't want to give to them. Men at Work began recording their debut album, Business as Usual, which featured the song Who Can It Be Now in 1981 with producer Peter Mecklen. The song opens with a saxophone hook by Greg Hamm. Hay had originally written the saxophone section later in the song, but McLean suggested moving the hook to the introduction. While recording the song, McLean wanted a saxophone solo and told Hamm to play anything just to get the sound. McLean used Hamm's improvised composition as the solo for the song. The next song we're going to play by them is Down Under. Uh, the lyrics to this song depict an Australian man traveling the globe who meets people who are interested in his home country. The story is based in part on singer Colin Hay's own experiences, including a prominent reference to a Vegemite sandwich, a popular snack in Australia, which derived from an encounter during Hay's travels abroad with a baker who immigrated from Brunswick, Melbourne. Hay also said that the lyrics were partly inspired by Barry Humphrey's character in Barry McKenzie, a comically stereotypical Australian who tours abroad. Slang and drug terms are featured in the lyrics. They open with the singer traveling in a fried-out combi on a hippie trail, head full of zombie. The Australian slang fried-out means overheated. Combi refers to the Volkswagen Type 2 combination van, and having a head full of zombie refers to the use of a type of marijuana. Hippie trail refers to a subcultural tourist route popular in the 1960s and 70s which stretched from Western Europe to the southeast of Asia. The song also contains the refrain, where beer does flow and men chunder. To chunder means to vomit. Hay, in an interview with Song Facts, talks about the overall meaning of the lyrics. Hay remarks, The chorus is really about the selling of Australia in many ways, the overdevelopment of the country. It was a song about the loss of spirit in that country. It's really about the plundering of the country by greedy people. It is ultimately about celebrating the country, but not in a nationalistic way or in a flag-waving sense. It's really a lot more than that. This evening, I've chosen two different recordings of the songs as you've probably heard them. They come from Colin Hay's solo album, Man Down Under. So here is Who Can It Be Now and Down Under by Colin Hay. Mm-hmm. 
can it be knocking at my door? Go away, don't come round here no more. Can't you see that it's late at night? I'm very tired and I'm not feeling right. All I wish is to be alone. Stay away, don't you invade my home. Best off if you hang outside. Don't come in, I'll only run and hide. Who can it be now? Who can it be now? No sound, tiptoe across the floor. If he hears, he'll knock all day. I'll be trapped, and here I'll have to stay. I've done no harm, I keep to myself. There's nothing wrong state of mental health. I like it here with my childhood friend. Here they come, those feelings again. Who can it be now? Is it the man come to take me away? Why do they follow me? It's not the future that I can see. It's just my fantasy. Take cover. 
muscle He was six foot four, full of muscle I said, do you speak my language, brother? He just smiled and gave me a Vegemite sandwich He said, I come from a land down under Where beaters flow and chunder Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? You better run, you better take cover Songwriter and bass guitarist Steve Kilby first played with guitarist Peter Copps in a glam rock band called Baby Grand in Canberra, Australia in the mid 1970s. After each had left to travel and play in other bands, including Tactics, which Kilby was in, and Limousine, which Copps was in, they met again in Sydney in March of 1980 and formed the initial three piece version of a band called The Church, with Limousine drummer Nick Ward as the third person. The name was a shortened version of the original name proposed by Kilby, the Church of Man. A month later, Marty Wilson Piper, originally from Liverpool, United Kingdom, witnessed one of their gigs and met Kilby afterwards. That same night, he was invited to join the band on guitar, establishing the classic two-guitar formation. A four-song demo was recorded in Kilby's bedroom studio and sent through contacts from his and Cop's old band Baby Grand to the Australian branch of the Beatles Publishing Company, ATV Northern Songs. The song Chrome Injury attracted the attention of managing director Chris Gilby, who signed the band to his recently formed record production company in association with EMI and their recently resurrected Parlophone label. Gilby went to the band rehearsals and helped shape their sound. He brought Wilson Piper a 12-string Rickenbacker guitar and equipped Cops with an Echolette tape delay. Of the first batch of demos, only Chrome Injury would go on to be recorded for release. 
Despite the change of atmosphere and warm press, low sales for the album singles in Australia prompted EMI to drop them. Plans for a double live album bootleg were also scrapped. Since the band had greater sales overseas than in Australia, they decided to record in a studio abroad and opted for a four-album deal with U.S. label Arista Records in 1987. For Australian releases, they signed with Mushroom Records. Recording sessions in Los Angeles were underway with producers Waddy Watchell, who produced Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, and Robbie Williams, and Greg Ladigny, who produced Warren Zevin, Jackson Brown, Fleetwood Mac. It was a new challenge, according to Kilby. It was Australian hippies versus West Coast guys who know the way they like to get things done. We were a bit more undisciplined than they would have liked. Personality clashes occurred as the two sides bickered over guitar sounds, song structures, and work ethic. Under pressure from producers, Kilby took vocal lessons, an experience he later regarded as valuable. The stress of living in the U.S. influenced our recordings, and Kilby was feeling very out of place. The church came to L.A. and really reacted against the place because none of us liked it. I hated where I was living. I hated driving this horrible little red car around on the wrong side of the road. I hate that there's no one walking on the streets and I missed my home. All the billboards, conversations I'd overhear, TV shows, everything that was happening to us was going into the music. Album tracks such as North, South, East, West, Lost, Reptile, and Destination bore the imprint of faces, scenery, and daily life of the group's new temporary home. Four weeks of grueling rehearsals resulted in Starfish, which focused on capturing the band's core sound. Bright, spacious, and uncluttered, the recording was a departure from the layered orchestrations of Heyday. The group wanted as live and dynamic an album as possible. Wilson Piper said that trying to record a live atmosphere lacked a real gig sense of being there. They found the results bare and simplistic. However, the public reception was unexpected. Released in April of 1988, Starfish found its way into the mainstream, marking a new worldwide commercial peak for the band. It reached number 11 in Australia and the top 50 in the U.S. The album was awarded a gold record in December of 1992 by the Recording Industry Association of America. Also released in February, the single, Under the Milky Way, reached number 24 on the U.S. Hot 100, 22 in Australia, and entered the Canadian Top 100. It peaked at number 2 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks. The song was written by Kilby and then-girlfriend Karen Jansen. Here for you now are the two singles released from that album, Starfish. Under the Milky Way and Reptile. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty sound of their breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Down Memphis Lower the curtain down on right I got no time 
Chrissy Amphlett and guitarist Mark McEntee were introduced by Jeremy Paul, ex-Air Supply member, in the car park of a small music venue in Calaroy, Sydney, after Amphlett and Paul had finished a gig with their then-band Baton Rouge. Amphlett and McEntee met again at the Sydney Opera House where Amphlett and Paul were singing in a choral concert in 1980. They recruited keyboardist Barn Olin later in 1980 and drummer Richard Harvey in 1981, retrospectively, and for almost two years, they performed in pubs and clubs in Sydney's King's Cross. During this time, Paul negotiated publishing and recording agreements that led to the band signing with WEA. Australian film director Ken Cameron saw Divinals performing in a club. This led to them providing a soundtrack for his 1982 film Monkey Grip and also gave Amphlett, Paul, and McEntee supporting roles in the movie. The group released two singles from the soundtrack, Music, from Monkey Grip, Boys in Town, which reached number eight on the national singles chart, and Only Lonely. The band was the opening act in the 1983 US Festival. At the start of their popularity, Divinals were considered to be a hard rock band. At some point, many fans referred to Amphlett as the female Angus Young, as both had similar mannerisms on stage and wore black and white school uniforms while performing in the early 1980s. The band's image gradually changed after the release of the album What a Life, when the band began wearing elaborate clothing and producing more songs in the pop music genre. By the time of the release of their album, Temperamental, Divinal's image had changed to a glamour fashion style where they produced modern pop music. In 1991, Divinal's released Divinal's on Virgin Records and a single called I Touch Myself, which became their only Australian number one single. The song reached number four in the United States and number 10 in the United Kingdom. The majority of Divinal's hits were co-written by Amphlett and McEntee. But in this case... They wrote with Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg. Divinals reached number five on the Australian album charts and number 15 on the Billboard Top 200. The drummer for the Divinal sessions was Charlie Drayton, who became romantically involved with Amphlett. They married in July of 1999 and from 2000 lived together in New York. A disagreement with Virgin Records stifled future development outside of Australia where they released popular albums and achieved two more top 20 singles with I Ain't Gonna Eat My Heart Out Anymore, which reached number 19, and I'm Jealous, which reached number 14. During the 1980s and 90s, Amphlett collaborated as a songwriter with other artists including Chrissy Hind, Cyndi Lauper, and both Amphlett and McAtee worked on solo projects. Here's the Divinals performing Hey Little Boy and Pleasure and Pain.
The three founders of this next band were from Perth, proto-punk, and punk bands. Dave Faulkner, on guitar, was a former member of the legendary Mannequins, and he left after a fallout with the frontman, Robbie Porritt. James Baker was with The Victims, and Roddy Redalge, who was in The Scientists. The fourth founding member, Kimball Rendell, on guitar, was formerly in a Sydney punk rocker's XL Capris. The three guitarists, Faulkner, Rendell, and Redalge, met at an end-of-1980 New Year's Eve party and were joined by Baker to form Les Hoodoo Gurus. Les Hoodoo Gurus, an orthodox lineup of three guitars and no bass player, fused pop melodies, punk guitars, and an American trash culture ethic. This was captured on their first single, Leilani, which we ended last week's episode with. It was released in 1982 on Phantom Records. Rendell left the band in 1982 before the release of Leilani and went on to become a music video and film director. Rendell was second unit director on the latter two Matrix films. Redalge was not happy with Rendell's leaving or Faulkner's greater influence and left the Gurus. He was replaced by ex-Fun Things guitarist Brad Shepard, who had been Brahmi's flatmate. Faulkner wrote the song, I Want You Back, in response to Redalge's public dissatisfaction with the Gurus. Redalge went on to perform with a number of other acts. The Gurus' new lineup became Baker, Bromley, Faulkner, and Shepard. They recorded the band's first album in 1984, Stone Age Romeos. The title came from a 1955 Three Stooges short Stone Age Romeos. The album was dedicated to characters from Get Smart, F Troop, Petticoat Junction. They were awarded Best Debut Album in 1984 at the July 1985 Countdown Music Awards. When Stone Age Romeos was released in America, it stayed at number one in the alternative college charts for seven weeks, becoming one of the most played albums for a year on the college network. Initially a cult inner-city act, their popularity expanded due to regular airplay on radio station Triple J and nationwide pop TV show Countdown from the mid-1983 to 84 time frame. Their breakthrough single, My Girl, was accompanied by a video clip featuring a dog trainer with his once-companion Greyhound. Members of Spiderbait described seeing the video for the first time as a beautiful, classic pop song. Some viewers insisted the song was written about a dog. This was closely followed up by I Want You Back, which featured animated plastic model dinosaurs. Both videos were aired frequently, raising the group's profile around the country. Original drummer James Baker was sacked from the band in August of 1984 and was replaced by Mark Kingsmill. Based on the success of Stone Age Romeo's The Hoodoo Gurus and their new drummer, they then embarked on their first tour of the United States in late 1984. Here's two songs from that first album, Death Ship and I Want You Back.
Australia in 1985. Its founding members were New Zealander Neil Finn, vocalist, guitarist, and primary songwriter, and Australians Paul Hester on drums and Nick Seymour on bass. Later band members included Neil Finn's brother Tim Finn and Americans Mark Hart and Matt Sherrod. Neil Finn and Seymour have been the sole constant members since the group's formation. Originally active from 1985 to 1996, Crowded House had consistent commercial and critical success in Australia and New Zealand and international chart success in two phases, beginning with a self-titled debut album that reached number 12 on the U.S. album chart in 1987 and provided the top 10 hits Don't Dream It's Over and Something So Strong. Further international success came in the UK, Europe, and South Africa with their third and fourth albums, Woodface and Together Alone. And the compilation album, Recurring Dream, which included the hits Fall at Your Feet, Weather With You, Distant Sun, Locked Out, Instinct, and Not the Girl You Think You Are, Neil and Tim Finn were each awarded an OBE in June of 1993 for their contributions to the music of New Zealand. In June of 1996, Crowded House announced that it would disband. The band played several farewell concerts that year, including the Farewell to the World concerts in Melbourne and Sydney. In March of 2005, Hester died by suicide, age 46. The group reformed with drummer Matt Sherrod and released two further albums in 2007 and 2010, each of which reached number one on Australia's album chart. As of July of 2010, Crowded House had sold 10 million albums. In November of 2016, the band was inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame. After several years of inactivity, it was announced that a revised lineup of Crowded House would tour the UK in 2020. The new lineup featured Neil Finn, Nick Seymour, Mitchell Froome, and Finn's sons, Liam and Elroy. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the band's planned 2020 concerts have been rescheduled for 2021. Here's those first two hits that hit the U.S. Don't Dream It's Over and Something So Strong. Traveling with me 
Australian band up is a band called the Lime Spiders. They were formed in 1979 by Michael Patrick or Mick Blood on lead vocals, who cites their influences as being 1960s garage bands with psychedelic rock, and early fellow members included Eric Roman Groth on guitar, Dave Guest on bass guitar, Daryl John Mather on guitar. The band's name relates to the non-alcoholic cocktail, a combination of vanilla ice cream and lime soft drink soda. The group's first show was supporting the Lonely Hearts on Christmas Eve in 1979, which Mather later recalled, we were absolutely horrible. So horrible that people didn't get it. I don't think I got it either. We came back properly later in 1980. By February of 1981, the lineup had stabilized with Blood, Guest, and Mather joined by Jeff Cleary on drums. The band played regularly, mostly around Sydney's inner city venues, but by February the following year, they had split up. During September that year, they reconvened with a new drummer, Stephen Rawl. Replacing Cleary, the group entered a Battle of the Bands competition at the Southern Cross Hotel, the major prize being a recording contract and the release of a single on Green Records. The competition ran over three months and included 64 bands. The Lime Spiders won the competition. I didn't cope well that night. We'd moved from hobbyist to being on the verge of becoming serious. We were rewarded with a record deal, like Radio Birdman had six years earlier. We got up, and we didn't miss a beat. A 40-minute set, we were in tune, which is something that the Lime Spiders weren't famous for, and we won. I vaguely remembered Bill Gibson standing at the backstage, constantly returning all the guitars. The recording sessions resulted in a four-track double single, 25th Hour, released on Green Records in 1983. 25th Hour was produced by Rob Younger and included covers of the Haunted's 125 and the Liberty Bell's That's How It Will Be. The title track was co-written by Blood and Mather, while the final track, Can't Wait Long, was co-written by Blood and Jack Mizian. Warwick Gilbert played bass guitar for the sessions because Guest was not confident in his playing ability. 
American punk rockers, the Dead Kennedys, their lead singer, Jello Biafra, heard the band while touring in Sydney and told Murray Englehart of Juke Magazine, this could be the best Time Warp 60s garage revival I've ever heard. They seem to be more interested in recreating 60s garage mania than updating it. I never thought I'd hear a psychedelic slime band more hardcore than Green Fuzz, but here they are. However, Lime Spiders fell apart again with Mather leaving before their single had appeared. I didn't like the Lime Spiders towards the end. I felt we had become heavy and were unsurped by what was happening around us. In my eyes, we were very much a covers band. I didn't see the band going anywhere, and I was yearning to become more involved with seriously constructed pop music. Here's two songs off that original debut, Slave Girl and That's How It'll Be. Cause you fooled me when I was taking my time. You abused 
This next band was originally introduced to me by a South African friend of mine. The name of the band is Boom Crash Opera. They were formed in early 1985 in Melbourne with a lineup of Peter Farnan on keyboard, guitars, and backing vocals, Peter Malslin on drums, percussion, and backing vocals, Greg O'Connor, Richard Pleasance on bass guitar, guitar, and backing vocals, and Dale Ryder on lead vocals. Serious Young Insects had formed in 1980 with Peter Farnan on vocals and guitar, Michael Valance on vocals and bass guitar, and Mark White on vocals and drums. Australian musicologist Ian McFarland describes Serious Young Insects as a quirky three-piece Melbourne new wave band. They issued an album, Housebreaking, in 1982, and three singles. Lisa Perry of Canterbury Times praised the album. Several times I had to check the cover to see if they were not also some session musicians on others contributing to the sounds I was hearing. For a three-piece combo, these lads sure make a good sound. In September 1985, three Australian journalists, Paul Gardner, Jane Gardner, and Toby Cresswell, listed 12 groups as the next big thing, with Boom Crash Opera described as one name that stands out, a Melbourne band that has every A&R man and his dog salivating. There are some other bands which, if not attracting the same sort of frenetic endorsement, are nevertheless on the minds of the scouts. Onion Skin is a song that was released in June of 1989 as the lead single from their second studio album. These here are crazy times. The song reached number eight on the Billboard Modern Rock chart. In the song, the singer tells how he has many layers of skin, like an onion. Here's two songs off of that album, The Best Thing and Onion Skin.
Crucial Cut. This week's Crucial Cut will lead us into next week's topic. Next week's episode will look at Christmas songs by 80s artists as we roll into the holiday season. To close us out this evening is an American punk rock band formed in San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles in 1977. 
one of the longest tenured punk rock bands. They have been a continuous existence for over 40 years. They've consistently balanced catchy melodies, harmony vocals, and pop song structures with a speedy punk guitar attack. This musical approach is paired with a humorous style and has been labeled pop punk or bubblegum punk. The band sometimes have been referred to as the clown princes of punk. So without further ado, here is Silent Night performed by the Dickies. And until next time, so long and farewell. Doug Crandall, every Thursday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Aren't you having any breakfast? I'm not in the mood. What are you looking at? Oh, the silent majesty of a winter's morn, the clean, cool chill of the holiday air, and an asshole in his bathrobe emptying a chemical toilet into my sewer. Shitter was full! Ah, yeah. You checked our shitters, honey? Clark, please. 